And so I'm asking you, if you would, to turn to Genesis chapter 14. Now, have you ever thought of uh, Genesis this way? Uh, listen, the first 11 chapters speak basically about events. Write that down. Events. All the rest of the chapters through 50, listen, from 12 on, speak less about events and more about people. You're looking at me like, why is he making that a big deal? Well, I make that a big deal because the Lord is interested in people. He's not just generically getting something done, although he does do that. And we're answering all, he's answering all the questions for us. But the first 11 chapters speak of creation, a fall, a flood, and the birth of nations. Listen to this. The next several chapters, whatever it is, 12 through 50, speak of, watch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he elaborates on it. He's about people, man. The Lord is into people. He loves us. He doesn't just come and spin the world and create the world and rev it up and then back away from it. You understand there's a lot of people that believe that? No, he's intimately involved with his creation, including us. And he cares for us. And we need to have that perspective. And so we've been moving on from the first 11 chapters, and we're moving into 12, and then last week 12 is sort of when uh, Abram has his little crisis of faith. I guess it's not a little crisis of faith. It's a big crisis of faith. He moved his whole family down to Egypt when he heard about a famine. And he sort of, uh, you know, had less faith than what would be optimal. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't depending upon God when he heard the word famine. He was depending upon his own ingenuity. And you can see it as he's wiggly. I mean, he walks, he's going down there and the leaders of Egypt are like, hey, who's that really cute girl with you? And he says, well, that's my sister. This is Abram, folks. Abram. And he even gets admonished by the people of Egypt for, why'd you say it was your sister when it was your wife? I mean, he was being admonished by the worldly kings. But then we see, in, by the way, in chapter 12, this crisis of faith follows the great promises that God gives to Abram. That he's going to come out of his country from your family. He didn't listen to God on that one. Remember, he didn't listen. He brought family with him. And I'm going to show you a land and I'm going to make you a great nation. That's what God says to Abram. And I'll bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the Middle East will be blessed. Wrong. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the life and family of Abram. That's why this is so important. This directly impacts you and me. And so we come to chapter 13 last week, and we see him inheriting uh, Canaan and getting back to the first love of his life. He moves back to a place between Bethel and Ai where he first went in uh, to the land of Canaan and established an altar, worship for him. And we talked about that. Oftentimes when we get in a rut or have a crisis of faith, what do you think the Lord sometimes is saying to us? Get back to your first love. Find out where you were and what you were doing when the Lord was warm and tender to you. And not that he's, he's not. We're the ones that move from the Lord. He doesn't move from us. But where were you? Go back to your first love. And we talked about that at length. 
And now we sort of come, oh, and we saw all the generosity of Abram too, huh? What generous stuff. He comes up out of the land and he's with his little nephew. He's not little, he's an old man too, but you know, he's an older guy, but and Lot picks the choicest area to live. You know, it just wasn't good that they lived together. Their herdsmen were fighting. And Lot looks down on the plain and sees the fertile ground and says, I'll take that. Abram says, okay. Abram knew the promises of God. He didn't have to fight for it because he knew God would fight for him. And that's important for us to know. And now we get to chapter 14 and you might be thinking how, at least I was when I first read it this week. Now I've read it before, but this week when I first read it, I'm going, now what am I going to talk about for an hour and a half? That's a joke. Not far off is right. What am I going to talk about? And that, man, the Lord just blesses all week and keeps going. Amen. And, uh, and wow, some of the things that he brought to our attention, or is going to bring to our attention. Well, here's what it happens now. Uh, uh, the Lord was so gracious to Abram and put his arm around him, sort of, and said, Hey, listen, I, I know Lot took the choices stuff, but lift your eyes up now and look from the place. I'm reading out of 13 here at the end. Uh, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And what's interesting about that is Abram's on the highest areas of the mountains of Israel. And he's looking everywhere. And he says, I give to you and your descendants. Listen, the word forever there in the Hebrew means forever. It's really hard to understand. But anyway, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. And remember, in Genesis 15.5, he says, I'll make your descendants as the stars in the sky. So no matter whether Abram walked and sort of looked at the ground or looked up and saw the sky, he remembered the promises of God. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? And so in Genesis 15, he says that. But as you continue on here in 13, he says, Then your descendants also could be number. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. That's a legal proceeding right there. That's a way of saying legally too, spiritually, legally, every way I can. I'm giving that land to you, the Lord says. And that's the promise. Then Abram moved his tent. Abram lived in tents, rich guy. He kept it light. Uh, the Bible tells us to keep our lives as Christian light. Don't hold on and clutch to everything. Because you might get moved here or there, and Abram knew it. And he, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Abram was looking forward to the heavenly city. He kept it light. And the Lord tells us to do that. And he, he moved his tent. I mean, this is a rich guy, and he lived in a tent. And he went down to Mamre, which is in Hebron. That's south of Jerusalem a little bit. You can look on a map. And built an altar there to the Lord. And remember, chapter 13 starts with worship and ends in worship. And in between, he has to deal with a snot-nosed, cocky, little bratty nephew. And he treats him so generous and loving. Just like the Lord does with us. And we go here and it says these things in chapter 14. 
And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Where's Shinar? Babylon. You got that? Everybody got Babylon? We're talking first here about the Mesopotamian kings. Write that down. We're going to make this simple for you here in a second. I'm going to read through it, but we're going to make it simple. It came to pass, Amphrophel, king of Shinar, that's Babylon. Arioch, king of Elasar, that's either southern Babylon or Turkey. And uh, this guy named Chedorlaomer something, king of Elam. Most people believe that's Persia or modern-day Iran. Everybody with me? And uh, this guy named Tidal, king of nations. And they think that's possibly Turkey as well. They're not exactly sure, the archaeologists, about this fourth one. But listen to this. This title, King of Nations, sir, underline this if you underline your Bible, verse 2. They made war with certain people, kings, tribal nations. Bera, king of Sodom. Now, if I could, I'm going to have the folks put up the map. Can you put up the map? Bera, king of Sodom. Look down here. Well, I picked the wrong map, but I can do it for you. Sodom and Gomorrah is down here. You see, you see all the way to the top, that's the Sea of Galilee. You see these other two little bodies of water here in the south. Down here over to the left of Zora, so, so to speak, over to the left is the areas in which these kings live, Sodom and Gomorrah. They're down there. It was called the Salt Sea, that, those lower seas there, those lower waters, or even the Asphalt Sea, or if you go with us to Israel, you'll go swimming. It's called the Dead Sea. It's the same thing. And uh, this, these next kings are from down there. There's a guy named Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shmeb, whatever. King of Zobu, Zeboim. And the king of Bela, that is Zorah. You see that? All these joined together in the Valley of Siddim. That's the Salt Sea. So we're down there. This is where Lot saw with his eyes, then moved his tent there. And eventually, even after what we're going to talk about here, Lot moves back and lives and works and engages in the culture in the city gate, which means he became a part of the culture. That's Lot. And yet, the Bible says in 2 Peter, the Bible says in 2 Peter that Lot was a righteous man. Now listen, you say, well, how do you square that? Well, because, look, in the New Testament, let's take our lives to the New Testament. How do you become righteous? You don't become righteous because you do everything morally good, you know. (laughs) The Bible says that God's righteousness through Christ is imputed to you and me when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and count on his finished work at the cross. I'm quoting, by the way, from 2 Corinthians 5. The righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is imputed to you. That's an accounting term. That means it's put into your spiritual bank account. The Lord says and sees when you surrender your life to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you. But I got news for you. You still live 
practically in a tent, a human tent. And Paul said that you're, do we have to leave? Oh, that's okay. We're all right. No problem. And Paul says this. Paul says that we war, our old nature wars against our spiritual nature. And so even though you're righteous, positionally, listen, practically, sometimes you still sin, right? Sometimes. I'm saying that in quotes. And what do you do when you sin? You confess your sin, God who is faithful and just, forgive your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You confess it and you you you, you go on with the Lord. And if you've hurt somebody in your sin, you uh, apologize or ask for forgiveness for them and you uh, make it right with them. Everybody with me? So you have two things. You're righteous positionally, theologically, spiritually, but practically sometimes you're still living that out and you're becoming more and more Christ-like in your sanctification. Is everybody with me? So Lot here gets off track, like you get off track and I get off track. And he sees with his eyes and he wants to take the good. And, you know, he just has a me-first attitude. And uh, even is disrespectful to his elders here. And, uh, and yet the Lord can do it and does do it in our lives and praise him. And here we have these kings. All I would say is just do this. Hold up four fingers. Yeah, come on, man. Participate. Let's go. Four Mesopotamian kings. You got it? Four Mesopotamian kings against, hold up five, against five kings way down south. Mesopotamia you see the right corner of our picture there? It's way up there. Sodom and Gomorrah, way down here. Here's what I do when I don't know something, which I didn't know this. I just pick out my handy-dandy Bible atlas, and I just look, same picture, all these people, all these kings up here coming down into this land, the Valley of Siddim. That's what I do. You should buy this, and this will help you, okay? Satellite Bible Atlas. So that's what I did, and it really helped me to see what was happening. Now, we get some uh, clues here as to why these people are fighting. These four mes hold up your four fingers, four Mesopotamian kings fighting against five Kings near Sodom and Gomorrah or the Valley of Siddim or the Valley of, you know, the Dead Sea or whatever down there. Everybody lot down there. Abram about 20 miles away from where Lot is living in Hebron. That's where Abram lives. Now, why am I going through all this? Because watch 12 years, verse four, they, who's they, the five Tribal nations near the Dead Sea served this guy named Chedorlaomer. Apparently, he's the leader, this one that lives in Elam, Persia, Iran. And what did they do? In the 13th year, they rebelled. That's a no-no in the ancient world. In the modern world, if you're under the subject of another kingdom or state or country, that's a no-no. And the five kings in the south have had enough. Had enough of what? Well, keep going with me, and I promise this is going to make sense here in a minute. Some of your eyes are glazed over. I can see it already. 
And in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnam, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, I don't know if I'm saying it right, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who dwell in Hazazon Tamar, which is En Gedi. If you've been with us to Israel, you go to En Gedi, and En Gedi is where Saul and David had their encounters in the caves. Now watch. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, king of Zobim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of uh, Elam, title king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Eric, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Put it up. Four kings against five. That's all you got to know here. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt, and the kings of Sodom and Gorah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. Now, I'm going to explain to you what's going on here. You got four kings off the chart in Mesopotamia. You ready? And do you see this red line that comes down to the right of the Jordan River? From Galilee to the Dead Sea. You see that red line? Ashtaroth. You see it? Uh, Ham, Kirathim, Elath, Kadesh Barnea, Tamar. You see that? What happened was this. The uh, four kings. The four kings of Mesopotamia said, listen... You five kings down in Sodom and Gomorrah, right, kept, stopped paying your taxes. And we ain't having it because they rebelled. The rebellion was they stopped paying their taxes. And if they were sending emissaries down there, if you don't pay us, we're coming to get you. They said, we ain't paying you. Too bad. Sorry. So the military leaders of the four kings got together and said, listen, when we get down to the Salt Sea, Dead Sea, the area where those kings are that aren't paying their taxes, we want to be able to fight them and destroy them without any other enemies coming from any other side. So on our way down, let's do this. Let's knock off the enemies at Ashtaroth, Ham, Kirathim, Elath, Kadesh Barnea, and then go over and attack from the front, and we won't have to worry about anybody from the north, from the uh, from the east, and from the south to the west is the uh, um, uh, the sea. So we're just going to go down there and knock them out. Okay, is everybody with me? So the fight here is at four against five, and in the interim, it describes battles on the east side of the Jordan River. Why am I making this such a big deal? Here's why. Because a lot of critics of the Bible said, yeah, right. Because the way of the patriarchs, you see where Hebron is, that blue line? That's called the way of the patriarchs. That was a path that nations and armies could travel in and through Israel. 
But they never in modern times ever discovered a path on that red line. And they say, see, the Bible's lying. Except guess what? There was a real amazing archaeologist in Israel that died in 1971. His last name was Gudek. And I don't know if you know much about archaeology. I don't really know much about archaeology. The only stuff I know is because I just sort of went to Israel twice and got some stuff from the guide over there. But all of the stuff is under the dirt. And for years and years and years, Bible critics said, well, Genesis 14 is a total lie because they didn't come down east of the Jordan River until Gudek unearthed civilizations in Asheroth, Ham, Kirathim, Elath. And he found it. And people were like, whoa, wait a second. The Bible's true. Or at least, you know, some of them wouldn't admit the whole Bible's true, but they said Genesis 14 is true. They found it. They found the civilizations. You got me? Oh, maybe I'm excited about that because you guys don't seem like you are, but I'm excited about that. Yes, right. There we go. Now we're talking. So anyway, you got these four kings and they come and they bid war against these five kings. And in the interim there, verses three through seven, they talk about these different civilizations that they attacked in these cities, the Rephaim. Rephaim, Deuteronomy 2.11. I'm just going to mention this to you. You're going to have to be a Berean here. Because even though you're getting some great information in chapters 3 through 7, the point of the story is not necessarily to tell you about all these civilizations. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the Rephaim were related to the giants that we've seen earlier in the Bible and we'll see later in the Bible. (laughs) And Rephaim, Rephaim, that word right there, what'd you say? Yeah, right, Nephilim, but it also, listen to this, check this out. In the rest of the Bible, it's used for spirits, listen, of the wicked dead in Job. And so many people, track with me here, many people believe that a lot of the civilizations on the red route had occultic practices. Isn't that interesting? And you could keep going on. They've traced most of these people, Rephaim, Suzim, Emim, Horites, Amalekites, Amorites. And if you do a, a study of who those people are, you'll be blessed and you'll understand. Okay. Amalek, by the way, Amalekites is the grandson of Esau. Now you're all looking at me and I'm, I, I get it. You're like, come on, get to something important. But see, this is important. Because this proves the Bible is accurate again, over and over again. Another place where it does it. Well, they get there, and look what happens. See, really the point of the story is not so much that you know all of the places of Genesis 14, although, praise the Lord, it's in there, and we can it can be validated by the archaeology, etc. What the point of the story is, is to tell you about Lot and Abram. <laughs> Remember what I said when I began today. The first 11 chapters talk about events. The rest of the chapters of Genesis talk about families. 
And God is doing a work through the life of this guy named Abram. He had a crisis of faith, but his life now is about faith. And we talked about that last week. Remember, the Bible tells us in at least three places, watch, the just shall live by faith. Even I can memorize that scripture. And remember, that was the scripture that Martin Luther was reading that hit him. He'd known this scripture for his whole life, but the Holy Spirit did something in his life by reading that again. And that's the reason that Martin Luther went on his quest and nailed his theses to the Wittenberg church door that created that separation between the Roman Catholic Church and what is the Reformation. So this is important because in Abram chapter 14, we see a man of faith. In fact, let me let the cat out of the bag a little bit. What we're doing is seeing the faith of Abram, or what God's doing, is we're... Uh, is We're seeing the faith of Abram. It's sort of ebb and flows. Anybody resonate? Can that resonate with you? Resonates with me, and I'm the pastor. It ebbs ebbs and flows. And then I think of the scripture, and it just blesses my heart. When we are faithless, he's faithful still. Amen about that one. But we see him ebb and flow. The just shall live by faith. What does it mean to be just? If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that you're justified. It's a spiritually legal-like transaction. You want to know about it? I do. Where the Lord says, because Tim, or put your name in there, trusted in the death of Jesus Christ... And his resurrection, the gavel of God comes down on Tim's life or your life, put your name in there, and says, in my court, bang, not guilty. You know, when I think of the stuff I've done, past, present, future, to say that I'm not guilty because of his son? Who? In other words, I've been justified, and so are you if you're in Christ. The Listen, why did I go through that? The just shall live by faith. In other words, you're going to be a person of faith now that you're in the family of God and have been justified. Everybody with me? So we're examining this man of faith, Abram, whose faith ebbs and flows. Praise the Lord. It's We're in heaven, salvation, justified, based on the blood of Christ, not how good I am. And yet I do have faith, and yet you do have faith, but my faith ebbs, ebbs and flows. But he is eternal and has paid it all, and that's why we celebrate every week. And here you come, and he, you know, he tells Pharaoh his... His wife is his sister, and you're like, what What are you doing, you knucklehead? Why would you say that? And then you go, man, I've put my foot in my mouth like that a lot. 
even after I've become Christian. And then, and yet the Lord's working on me. So I'll go back to my first love between Bethel and Ai, like Abram, and I'll commune with the Lord and I'll spend time with the Lord and the Lord and me and we'll, and he'll do things in and through my life, including when I get people who are in my life who are hard to live with, like an, un- uh, like a nephew lot who thinks he knows it all and you can't tell him anything. And he disrespects you. You ever had people disrespect you? How's it feel? That you can say, I believe more in the promises of God like Abram. And that's more important to me than getting it right on somebody who's a snot-nosed little kid. And I have the spirit of Christ living in me to help me live like that. And to put an exclamation on it, here's what he does in Genesis 13, the The chapter starts with worship and ends with worship. And the Lord says, all of that, the way you live your life is worship to me. Even when you're dealing with family members or hard and difficult people, that's the most when you're living like the Christian life in faith. And then we get here and, you know, I can just imagine Abram, he's, you know, looking out over his people and his servants and he's, you know, doing his thing and he's up in Hebron Oh, yeah, we got it there. He's up in Hebron and, you know, just doing his thing, living his life. I bet you, personally, it doesn't say this, I bet you he was praying for Lot and his family. He was on his knees praying, lifting him up before the Lord. And all of a sudden, one day, watch this, as Lot has been taken with the Sodomites, All the goods and departed, listen to this, verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, that's the first time, by the way, that the Hebrew, the word Hebrew is used in the Bible. There's a lot of firsts in this chapter, by the way. I'll try to point them out, but there's so many, so many words that are used for the first time, but here it's used for the first time. And most people believe that the term Hebrew is translated the one from over the river because he lived way out in Mesopotamia and came across the rivers. Get it? But anyway, that's what they called him. They called him Abram uh, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. You get that? Everybody just, listen, recalculate right here. I had to get you through the history. But I really want you to see this. I want to see it in my own life. Here I am. Here he is, maybe like a lot of you, just living your life. Now, there's something that I think you can deduce from the way in which Abram was living his life. Let's think about it in terms of New Testament living. You want to turn with me? to the book of Romans. Hey, what is the book of Romans all about? It's about being justified. And because you're justified, listen, because he said not guilty, because you have imputed righteousness, this is what he, uh, Romans is all about. Because of all of that, you have the spirit of God living in your life. And guess what? There's a certain way that a person controlled by the Spirit, lives. 
And I want you to see it in Romans 12. Romans 12. Listen to this. Let love... Well, let's go even before that. Look in 6. Having then gifts different according to the grace, that's what, listen, listen, that's how you get saved. How do you get saved? By grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Listen, having then gifts different according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophesy, let's prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let's use it ministering. Uh, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality. This is what a spirit-filled life looks like. Are you catching this? Generous. What was Abram? Unbelievably generous. It's a person who teaches. It's a person who exhorts. Think about a great coach. They exhort you. They don't always tell you what you like, by the way. But they exhort you on to higher performance. In this case, better living because People exhort you and you're exhorted. You take exhortation and you're a giver and you lead and you show mercy and you're cheerful. It's right there in the Bible. Everybody who's a sad sack or a sourpuss, read this. Oh boy. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor hate. Hate what is evil. Hey, folks, hate what is evil, and I got news for you. What's evil in this life looks good. It looks shiny. It looks like it's innocuous. The enemy's no dummy. He doesn't come with red horns. He doesn't look like Linda Blair. He comes in something that looks good, and then sometimes it can be packaged in spirituality. But the Bible says hate what is evil. Hate what's from the enemy and cling to what is good. And then listen, be affectionate to one another. If the church would just do that. When people come here, be kind to one another. Love one another according to the spirit of God. Let him live in through you. You don't always have to have 16 coconut donuts. You can give one or two up. To somebody who needs one. Or your pew or your church seat. Let them sit in your seat. Be kind. Smile. Shake somebody's hand. Look them in the eye and be kind. Would that be amazing? Just that. In honor, prefer one another, not lagging in diligence. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope patient in tribulation, continue in prayer, distribute to the needs of the saint, given to the hospitality. Now watch, here you come, Abram. I bet you Abram was this, because I see it in the last two chapters. He blessed those who persecuted him or even blessed those who got it over on him. You know what, you know what the mentality of America is? It's like the mafia mentality. It's like this. Hmm. You got that over on me. And some of us will come back and just give it to you right away. But many of us are like this. I don't know how. I don't know when. 
But I'm going to lodge that right there and right there. And when the appropriate time comes, I'm going to get you for this. You say, oh, well, that's true. A lot of people have problems with that, including me. I'm that way without the Lord. But Abram must have been, why am I saying this? Must have been like this and more. He cried with those who cried. He hugged those he needed to hug. He prayed with those. The reason I think I know it is, as soon as Lot got captured, listen, as soon as Lot got captured, they ran to the uncle. He was part of the family. And they knew Abram would do something about it and wouldn't hold a grudge. I want to, don't you listen, folks. Don't you want to live your life in such a way that when the world has a catastrophe happen to it, that people will run to you and you can give them the answers. See, you can rescue people right now. Not really. I mean, the Lord does the rescuing. But the Lord uses you to share the greatest rescue in all of history, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when people are hurting, when people, you know, you might not, you might love people and they'll make fun of you and do these things at work. But listen, when the rubber hits the road, when somebody dies, when a catastrophe happens, listen, people are going to run and seek answers and they're going to come to you just like Abram. If, listen, if you're living your life for the glory of God and for his fame, not your fame, that he would be famous in your life, that... All I'm saying is you would glorify the Lord in your life, not yourself. When the rubber hits the road and there's a catastrophe, people will come to you. In fact, they'll run. Don't hold a grudge. What are you holding a grudge about? The Lord says you forgive. You're forgiven. You forgive. Not an option. All of it, you live for his fame. You live in such a way that the glory of God just comes pouring out of your life. You might even be a quiet person. That's okay. But they know you're rock solid, steady in the Lord. And it's not because you're perfect. Abram wasn't. It's because he's perfect and he lives in and through you and people will come. Let's be people that have other people run to them. And he did. These people, they became allies. Did you notice that? Now, when 14, Abram heard that his brother, notice that, he's not his brother. It's his nephew. But he's like, my brother. I love this guy. Just read back to chapter 13. But anyway, he calls him his brother, was taken captive. He armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. He loved his people, and they loved him. And he trained this special core or group of people who could take up the mantle. They were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit 
as far as Dan. Now, when Abraham, listen, it, when it says he armed, the Hebrew is doing something right there. Do you know what it's doing? It says that he unsheathed 318 trained servants who were willing to go and fight. Got to tell you now, how many kingdoms won the battle? Four. I can guarantee you there's more. Right. Now we're talking. I can guarantee you there's more than 318 people that they're going up against. Are you catching it? Do you know later on to uh, to uh, J- uh, Jonathan and then later on to Gideon, they had this same thing. But in uh, the story of Jonathan, it said, it doesn't, uh, he says, I think it's in 1 Samuel 14. I don't, he says, whether there's a lot of them against us or not very many against us, whether we have a lot or we don't have a lot, listen, the Lord has us. And Abram knew it. Can you imagine taking 318 people against four armies and chasing after them, willing to go into the fight? And I'm asking you, as a Christian, are you willing to go into the fight? Here, you'll only be willing to go into the fight, watch this, as far as you believe the promises of God. Not just know the promises of God, believe the promises of God. Big difference. Belief means you're ready to put the boots on the ground and live in the promises of God. Here, it would have been very tempting. Trust me. Uh, you know what? Uh, you say Lot got captured? I'm Abram. Uh, you, you say Lot got captured? Wasn't he the one that just a few months ago was telling me to buzz off and I'll take the choice. Hmm. And I'm sitting here and I got this good thing going on in Hebron. Eh, no thanks. I can see that happening easy. But Abram didn't. He lived a life of forgiveness and sweetness. He knew he was, by grace, looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. We're going to see that in a two chapters. No, next chapter. And it actually says in Genesis 15, 6, listen, that righteousness was imputed to Abram. So here you got this guy living a life of godliness, like you're to live a life of godliness. And he comes and you get this news and he's willing to put it all down, take 318 chosen trained servants and go chase after him. He wasn't after his own comfort. That's what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way. You know what we'd probably say? Well, I mean, the Steelers are on today. And, you know, I got family coming over and uh, maybe later. That's what we'd say. Or whatever. Or my life is so great. I'm not giving it up and going for the Lord. I'm going to do what... I want to do. I'm comfortable. I got an IRA coming. I'm about to retirement age. I'm going to enjoy life, play some golf, blah, 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 blah. Right? Here, Abram says, I'm going. No hesitate. He lived for the fame of God. They knew he lived for the fame of God. They tell him that a family member's in need. You're in the family of God like I'm in the family of God. And he says, I'm sending the 318. I don't care how many they have. He stood on the promises of God like you and I are to stand on the promises of God. It's amazing. And I want you to see something. They go all the way there 
from down by the sea, I guess they're over from Zoar there, right up to the, a little bit to the left. And they go up to Hebron, they tell Abram, and then watch what Abram does. He chases them all the way to northern Israel in a place called Dan. It was a different name in ancient times, but he chased them up there. And Dan has a really fascinating story. This is sort of a side note. But Dan has a fascinating history. And if you come with us, we go to Dan. And what's really interesting, you got that picture, folks. Up in Dan, I sent some pictures over. Do you have that? If you don't, that's okay. I saw, um, uh, up, up in Dan, uh, they thought that arched gates came in with the Romans. When did the Romans live? Jesus' time. And then in 1979, yeah, go to the next one, please. If there's another one, that, there you go. In 1979, they did a dig, and they found an arched gate that has been preserved. It's the oldest gate in the world. You find it right here. A gate was the entrance to a city, This is the entrance to the city that Abram and his people would have gone in. And by the way, in Israel, one was preserved under the mud and bricks. Mud got on the bricks and saved it. And in 1979, they unearthed it. Isn't that crazy? And now that is called the gate of Abraham and Dan. You got it? Guess what else they found in Dan? They found a column, a stone column. And do you know that for years... Years, years. Critics of the Bible said there's no proof that David ever lived and ruled in Israel until they found a column that had some information about King David of Israel. And so this is a very popular spot when you go to, go to Israel. It's in the north. And anyway, that's Abram's gate and it's Almost 4,000 years old. It's the oldest gate in the world. It's there in Dan. And he, look at this, down in verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they go to Dan, and then they go farther up. And look what happens. Uh, Abram brings back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And you can see, right? I mean, you can see, you can start to see some foreshadowing here, some pictures here, and Abram is a picture of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? As Abraham was to Lot, you ever thought about this? Christ is to you and I, to us. As Abraham was to Lot, Christ is to us. Thank goodness Before you sit down for three and a half hours starting at one o'clock today, when you get home today and you're about ready to say your prayers, thank the Lord for this, that Christ didn't sit in heaven waiting for us to deserve being saved like Lot. Now, Abram said, I'm going... But, you know, it cost Abram. I mean, he had to leave. He had to sacrifice. So neither was our redemption painless. Christ left the glories of heaven to come after us. 
Folks, you're okay. Come on. You're waiting for something Christmassy. You want the garland and the trees and the presents and the nostalgia. But there is Christmas in Genesis 14. Right there. It's a picture of what Christ did for us. Some snot-nosed, smart-alecky, rebellious kids. Us. Telling the Lord, sort of, where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do. And the Lord didn't sit in heaven and say, you know what, when Tim gets better, I'm going to make it down there. He said, no, boom, I'm coming and I'm going to save. And he came out of heaven, his comfort. The richest of the rich became the poorest of the poor so that we could be rich. Abram with Lot. It's amazing. And so there's Christmas right there. And the king of Sodom, look at this. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him. Do you know this? Oftentimes in the Christian life, the greatest attacks come after success. And here, the king of Sodom goes out to meet him at the Valley of Sheva, that is the King's Valley, after his return from the defeat of Cheir Lomar, and the kings were who were with him. So you're going to have two kings here. I always laugh when I say I'm teaching on Genesis 14. You know what everybody says? Oh, Melchizedek. You're going to teach on Melchizedek. Yeah, we are going to do that. But nobody remembers that he just wasn't visited by Melchizedek. Abram wasn't. The king of Sodom also came and talked to him. And the king of Sodom was sort of just short-winded. Here's what the king of Sodom says. Look over in verse 21. He says to Abram, sort of like Nimrod, listen, sort of like, like Nimrod, I don't want any of the spoil. I don't want any of the riches. I'll just take the souls of men. That's what he's saying right there. Woo. Wow. Who does the king of Sodom represent? He represents the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. But let's talk about this Melchizedek guy. What's this all about? Because there's another one that comes and visits with Abram. What's interesting about this visit, I want you to see, first of all, even before we read it, (laughs) it's like a mutual blessing. Here, I want to bless you. Oh, no, 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 no. I want to bless you. No, no, no. I want to bless you. No, I'm going to bless you. That's what they're doing here. The Melchizedek, what does Melchizedek mean? It means king of righteousness. And we know here, listen, listen, we know in uh, Psalm 76, verse 2, we know, or we think we know, probably Salem was Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Here's this one from Sodom. We know what Sodom represents. It's a word that's become something about sexual perversity, right? And then we know here what Salem represents. It's peace. And this king of righteousness brings out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Of course, he wants to refresh Abram. For how great he did. And he was the high priest 
of God. Now, I want you to notice something. Just hang with me for a minute. I mean, if you get this, it's going to blow you away. You're going to be all set for Christmas. Do you notice that he was all a king and a priest? Did you notice that? Look down again. He's a king and a priest. And guess what happens in Second Chronicles? Guess what happens? The Lord says in Second Chronicles, which is coming later in the book of the Bible. Everybody with me? It says in Second Chronicles, a king can't be a priest and a priest can't be a king in Israel. But this guy, Melchizedek, king of righteousness from Jerusalem, the place of peace, could be both a king and a priest, and it was okay. Are you with me? Everybody with me? Okay? Because I'm trying to tell you and think to you, think for with you, who is this guy? And he blessed him. Look, he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram. <laughs> Turn over to chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. Hold it. What's the next line? I will bless you. Go back to chapter 14. Whoever this guy is, he knows about the blessing. And he blesses Melchizedek, or excuse me, Abram himself. Melchizedek blesses Abram, the one of the God Most High. It's the first time El Elyon is used. Don't look around now. Don't look around. Stay with me. And he says, possessor of heaven and earth, the ultimate basis of faith, right there. Because who he serves, Abram, is the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, this one knew that the source of Abram's victories came from God. You guy looking at me like, what are you doing? Now, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. This is compare and contrast. Here's Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? We're trying to figure that out. He's blessing Abram like God blessed Abram, king of righteousness from Jerusalem. Or, or they're the king of peace, sorry, both priest and king. That was banned later. But Abram says to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I'll take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take uh, anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me Aner, Eshkol, and Memory, let them take their portion. Now, what am I trying to say here? Do you know that the next time, there's a couple more times in the Bible we see Melchizedek. You get this? About a thousand years later, did you hear me? About a thousand years later in Psalm 110, verse 4, listen, it says that the priesthood of the Messiah is a priesthood according to Melchizedek. Gotta, you gotta think about this with me. Fast forward a thousand years. David is penning some psalms. Some other people are penning some psalms. And the Lord uses the Holy Spirit to pen this psalm. That the 
one who is coming that's going to save you is going to come from a priestly line of Melchizedek. You all are in here like, why are you making such a big deal of this? Because the Lord said in his law that the priests had to come from the line or from the Levites and specifically from the line of the Levite Aaron, Moses' big brother. And then you get to the Psalms and you're like, but wait a minute, the Messiah is coming from Melchizedek. That's against what we're doing here. The, the Jews would say. Okay, now watch. But then you go in and you read Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 7, and you get to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3, and you see, listen, that Melchizedek has no father, and he has no mother, and he has no genealogy. You go read it. And you note that Abram here worshipped Melchizedek. He gave him a tithe. And Melchizedek didn't object. It was okay to worship him. What am I saying here? Well, there's a lot of people that believe that Melchizedek was from the line of Shem or Shem himself. The problem with that is Hebrews 7 verse 3. Melchizedek has no father or mother or no genealogy. Well, you know Shem's genealogy. It could be, and many people believe this, that this Melchizedek, who's the king of Jerusalem at the time, watch, I know some of you are bored right here, but if you get this, you'll worship the Lord in a deeper way. Some people believe that the king of Jerusalem was a type of Christ. And just a picture of Christ. But then there's others, and I find myself in this camp. You find yourself in the camp that the Lord directs you to, that believes that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa! A Christophany. That this was so important. That's what I want to get to. This was so important. Here was a man. He wasn't a perfect guy. Here's what his faith did. But God, by his grace and mercy, picked him and said, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. And you say, well, how did Amram bless the whole world? Well, the Messiah comes through because of him. And one of the things is the Lord went, maybe and appeared to Abram up against Sodom's king, compare and contrast. And I want you to see something. Abram worshipped him, but Melchizedek poured blessing and honor out on him. And if this, whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or whether this is a picture of what Christ does, this is true. You're honored and blessed. Listen, you might not be a gazillionaire and don't let those people on TV tell you wrong. That stuff's false. God may bless you and praise the Lord if he does bless you with monetarily, 
But what he's saying is, if you give your life to me, I'm going to bless you in ways that you'll never be able to describe or see. It's going to be so wonderful and amazing. If you're willing to live for my fame and my glory instead of your comfort, if you're willing to say that I'm sovereign, the Lord, not me, that the Lord's sovereign and he is the one I'm going to serve all of my life, and you're ready to get up off the couch when people are in trouble and serve him and love him like Abram was. Look at the blessing that comes. And I want to show you one final thing. You're like, oh, could it be one final thing? Abram said, hey, uh, I know you told me you'd let me have all the stuff there, king of Sodom. But I don't want anything coming from you. Nothing. I don't want anything. I want people to know that anything I ever have in life or can be in life comes from God. Right. Now listen. I don't know if you noticed this, but he said, but for my other people here, look at this. The other people here, let them have the stuff. You get it? But for the men who are with me, Aner, Ishkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. And I want you to see something. I want you to know that when you surrender your life to Jesus, it's not just saying something on the back of a magazine and going on about your life. In fact, it reminds me of like when Paul said, Paul said, listen, I know it's okay for people to make money from sharing the gospel. Didn't Paul say that? Paul said that. He said, but for me, I'm impressed by the Lord that I'm going to just still be a tent maker so that nobody could say anything against me. You see, Paul wasn't saying you couldn't work or he couldn't work or she, whatever. Paul was just saying, I'm convinced and convicted. Amen? You with me? Okay, watch this. I hesitate to show you this because here's why. Some of you are going to run out of here and say, oh, my goodness, that's a legalistic church. Nah. If you don't really read the book of Titus and understand what grace is, Grace isn't just letting you get away with everything. Grace is training us, okay? And what I see here is a man convicted that I am not going to take anything from Sodom. The other people can. Not bad for them, but the Lord has put it on my heart, and I want you to see something. So I'm going to have them put up something here that I love. You know that the Bible says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Everybody with me? For whoever wishes to save his life, listen, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a bulletin insert that you're allowed to show. I'm a lawyer, so I think about those things. But anyway, G.D. Watson was a Wesleyan Methodist minister and an evangelist in Los Angeles. And he wrote this about this verse. It's something that I think about and can't get out of my head. 
And it says this, and here's what I want you to do before you read that. Look eyes at me, not there. (laughs) I want you to remember that Paul said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build tents. But he was okay with other people building tents. I'm just showing you this because I want you to think about what it means that Abram did when he said, I declare that everything I do is going to come from the Lord and not from human hands. Do you get it? So here, I want to show you this. If God has called you to be truly like Jesus in your spirit, he's going to draw you in, listen, to a life of crucifixion and humility. Would you agree with that? And that he'll put on you such demands of obedience. And now you're going, wait a minute. You're a legalist. No, no. You know how the Bible tells us that we show love to the Lord? You obey him. He says you put on such demands of obedience that you'll not be allowed to follow other Christians. Take this with a grain of salt. Paul said, imitate me like I imitate Christ. But think about it. Maybe some God's saying something for Paul that he's not saying for me or vice versa. In many ways, he seems to let other good people do things which he might not let you do. I put that in there. Others who seem to be religious and push themselves, pull wires and schemes to carry out their plans, but you can't. Doesn't this sound like Abram? If you attempt it, you'll meet with failure and rebuke from the Lord as to make soul penitent. I just got to tell you, that resonates with me. My whole life was being famous and rich. That's all I wanted to do. You laugh. That's it. I moved to Hawaii to do it. I took my wife with me. That's what I wanted to do, just to be rich and famous. And I was going to do it. And maybe I would have if the Lord didn't get a hold of my heart. But he didn't. He made me go somewhere else. And he brought me to the my knees in financial crisis. Others may be able to brag about themselves, their work, their successes, their writings. But the Holy Spirit... I'm just going to put this in here for me. Might not allow you to do that thing. Of course, brag, we won't do that. If you begin to do so, he'll lead you into some deep mortification that will make you despise what you're doing and all your good works. Others will be allowed to succeed in making great sums of money or having legacy left to them or in having luxuries. But God may supply you on a day-to-day basis because he wants you to have something far better than gold. And that's a helpless dependence on him and his unseen treasury. (laughs) The Lord may let others be honored, put forward while you're hidden in obscurity because he wants to produce some choice fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can only be produced in shade. You ever felt bad that you weren't getting the attention that you deserved? The Bible says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. God may let others be great, but keep you small. He'll let others do a work for him and get the credit, but he make you work and toil without knowing how much you're doing or even appreciate it. I put that in. Then to make your work still more precious, he'll let others get the credit. Oh boy, don't you hate when that happens. This to teach you the message of the cross. Humility. And something of the value of being cloaked with his nature. Isn't that powerful? 
The Holy Spirit will put a strict watch on you with a jealous love, rebuke you for careless words and feelings or for wasting your time, which other Christians never seem bothered or distressed over. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and has a right to do as he pleases with his own, that's you, and that he may not explain to you a thousand things which may puzzle your reason in his dealings with you. He'll take you at your word. If you sell yourself to be his servant or his slave, he'll wrap you in a jealous love. Who wants? Oh, man. Come on now. And let other people say and do many things that you can't. Settle it forever. You are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit. He's to have the privilege of tying your tongue. Who needs that? Or chaining your hand or closing your eyes and wage which others are not dealt with. However, know this great secret of the kingdom. When you're so completely possessed with the living God that you are in your secret heart, pleased and delighted over this peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, you will have found the vestibule of heaven and the high calling of God. When I read Abram saying, I don't want it. Take your stuff. Others might be able to have it. I can't. All I can think about is what this pastor wrote. Some of us might be saying here today, how come you don't recognize me more, Lord? Why doesn't the pastor call on me more? Why don't you let me do that or see that thing? Why can some people see that and I can't? Why do some people have that money and I don't? Maybe it's because he's doing such a great, fragrant work in your life. And that he wants you in a good, jealous love for himself. And the question becomes, here it is, and we'll close on this. Is that enough? Is that enough? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here and we think of these things and we go, Lord, how did this man get to that point? But we know, Lord, it's by your sovereign hand and guide. And Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. And everybody says, amen. amen.